All right, so we're in the book of Philippians tonight. We're going to finish chapter one and go on into chapter two. And we're going to stop at verse four of chapter two. Before we get to that great kenosis passage, the emptying of Christ, we'll look at that in depth next week. It's like, I was so tempted. I was like, man, I want to do it, but I want to make sure we spend enough time in it. So, but tonight we're just going to focus on chapter one, beginning in verse 27. We're going to go to uh, chapter two, verse four. As Pastor Gino said in a study that we're calling the, um, you know, life in Christ, because really think about it, this epistle describes to us what the life in Christ is. Our first study, we talked about how God is continuing this work in us, the, the fact that since we're born again, the Lord is working in our hearts day by day, and he's changing us and molding us into the image of Jesus Christ, and though we're not perfect, the Lord is daily changing us. We're works in progress, and we have that hope that he who has begun to go work will complete it until the day of the Lord, and he's changing us, making us more loving. And then last week, we talked about the victory that we have in Christ, and the fact that because we're in Christ, the Lord has given us victory, he's given us joy, and he's given us um, grace to overcome obstacles and temptations and struggles. And tonight, we're going to focus on unity in Christ, and that the Lord saved us not just for ourselves, but the Lord saved us for something greater than ourselves. And God has placed us into his body, into the body of Christ, and he wants us to learn how to minister one to another, but also take that love out into the world so others can be drawn in as well. So that's what we're going to focus on tonight. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless our time. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. I was struck, Lord, by the, by the worship, Lord, and just the fact that, Lord, we just need to glorify you. Lord, we just glorify you for your word. Lord, we glorify you for forgiving us, Lord, of our sins. All of us, Lord, came poor in spirit, but yet by your great grace, Lord, you saved us. Um, Lord, it seems like in life there's always a lot to complain about, Lord, but yet when we think about your glory, Lord, how can we complain? Lord, you're too good. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight, Lord, regardless of what's going on in the world, Lord, regardless of what's maybe even going on, in our lives, Lord, we come to you, Lord, to glorify you and ask that you would um, be glorified through our life. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So in talking about unity, you know, unity is really essential for effectiveness in many things, right? Whether you're talking about a nation, right? You know, that, that slogan we have, united we stand, and we all know that. You know, if we're gonna be effective as a nation, well, we need to be one nation under God, in sports, right? There's no I in team. The Broncos found that out, right? Man, anybody, Broncos fans, I, I said I was gonna bring it up for, uh, for, and so, you know, so I mean, the Broncos, man, they just played a great game as a team, you know, and, and because of that, they won. And so every effective team, you know, is, is one. In music, think of an orchestra or a band. I mean, as they play it as one, it's, it's beautiful, I had a chance to go to the Fresno Philharmonic. I was cultured, never been there before. I was, I was amazed, you know, because like all these people playing all these different instruments, but as they follow the conductor, you know, they make something beautiful as they all work together in unity. Jesus said at the best, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A home divided is not a strong home, it's a, it's a weak home. And so, but as yet, as the two, husband and wife, grow closer to Christ, they go closer in unity in the home is strong. And so unity 
as it relates to many things, is, is, um, is essential for effectiveness. Well, the same is true for our life in Christ as believers. You see, the Bible teaches us in the, in the New Testament that the church requires unity. For example, the church is called the body of Christ. And a body that is divided is not a very effective and strong body, right? You know, if you're going to run an, an Olympic race, that body needs to be fully functioning and all together. The Bible also calls us God's building, right? If this building was falling apart, and it wouldn't be very effective. But yet, as the Bible calls us, stones built together. And we're God's house. He's making us into his spiritual temple. We're called God's flock in the Bible, and as you know, the flock follows the, the shepherd. If sheep want to go this way and sheep want to go that way, it's not very effective. But as they follow the shepherd is one, and they become strong and they're protected from wolves. And also we're called God's house. And so, I mean, these are just a couple of the many terms that the Bible uses for the church, but all of them imply unity. All of them imply uh, oneness. The Apostle Paul is going to continue this important truth in this passage and teaching these believers in Philippi because this is something that they needed to learn. You see, they were a dynamic church. They were a giving church. They were a joyful church. I mean, they sent Epaphroditus to, to Paul to minister to him with a special gift, and they were sending Paul gifts, but yet there was something that was going on in their church that was gonna affect their effectiveness, and that was division. There was two women, as we'll read in chapter four, their names are hard to pronounce. I'll learn it by the time I get to chapter four. Iotis and Sinechi, I, I believe. And these two women were fighting. And there was a vision. And Paul is actually going to have to call them out in chapter four. He says, hey, guys, help these women get along with each other. You know, for the sake of, you know, the, the body. In chapter one, Paul began this book by talking about how we're to grow in love more and more. How we're to be built up. And so unity is an important theme. And Paul's going to continue that. Now, as we talk about unity tonight, we'll focus on three things. Number one, we'll see the purpose for walking in unity. Number two, we'll see the power for walking in unity. And number three, we'll see the practice of walking in unity. So first, in verses 27 to 30, we learn the purpose for walking in unity. Unity is good, right? You agree. But I must clarify that unity for a good purpose is even better. You see, a nation can be united around sin, and as the Bible says, you know, sin is a reproach to any nation, right? That nation is ripe for judgment. A sports team can be united around the wrong plays, and yet just as many football teams do, like the 49ers, they lose. I'm sorry, I'm a Raiders fan. I still love you, though. God loves you, and he, we can love each other. This is, this is a test here. This is just a test. It's just a test here. An orchestra, right? They all can be united around the wrong key, and yet the music will be off. It'll probably sound better than me, playing an instrument or something, but yet it'll still be off. In the same way, the church can be united around a lot of different things. They can meet for a lot of different reasons, but unless we're uniting around the gospel, it's gonna be, it's gonna, it's gonna be ugly. And, and that's what Paul points out here in verse 27. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs and that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul basically says, hey guys, I want you to practice what you're preaching. Paul wanted to make sure that their lifestyle was living up to the truths that they expressed in the gospel. You see, they were preaching a life-changing message, 
a transformed message of love, but yet Paul wanted to make sure that, that their lives were going to back it up. Now, I'm told that the words your conduct in this verse comes from actually from a Greek word that means, um, it, it's a political word, which means live like citizens. And so when Paul says, hey, you guys, make sure that your conduct backs up the gospel, he's saying, make sure that you guys are living like citizens of the gospel. Philippi, as we pointed out in our first study, was a Roman colony. And so all the believers here knew what it was to live as a Roman citizen. You knew that you had to pay taxes and you know, do different things like that. Well, even so, Paul says, well, you're a citizen of heaven. Your home is not of this world, but your citizenship is actually in heaven. So therefore, you're to represent that kingdom. And the book of Colossians tells us that you and I were in the kingdom of darkness, but we've been translated into the kingdom of his son and in his love. And so we've been translated into this kingdom of light, this kingdom of love, and we're to express this kingdom living with our lives. Now, one of the characteristics of a kingdom citizen is to walk in holiness, to walk separated from the world, to, to live unto the Lord, and to let him have our heart. Also, we're to walk as one in love. Christ, before he departed this earth, spent you know, his last night with his, you know, his disciples teaching them a lot of things, and these were things that were gonna prepare them for the church age. He taught them about the power of the Spirit and the communion of the Spirit. But he also talked to, him, talked to them about love. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And then in John 17, the Lord goes on and prays to the Father and says, Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one, you know, that you and me, you know, that they may be one in us. And so unity, love, these were all important characteristics on the heart of the Lord, and they were to be lived out through his kingdom citizens, those who, you know, received the kingdom in their heart and those who are waiting for the literal kingdom that he's gonna come and establish at a second coming. So Paul's desire is that when he came to see them, that their lifestyle would be living out this love and living out the, the, the truth of the gospel, whether he came and saw them or whether he heard of the state of the church, this is how he wanted to see them. They're to be of one soul or one desire. They're to walk as one. They're to be of one mind or in other words, one purpose, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul said, I want you of one mind, meaning I want you guys to have the same desire. And I want you to be of, um, you know, of one purpose here as you strive for the gospel. Now, the word strive implies agonizing or laboring to get the gospel out. So it's not something that would be, he says, it's just gonna be so simple. No, he says, I want you guys to strive to get the gospel out. It's gonna take work. It's gonna take sacrifice. And, the first, and this shows us the first purpose of our unity. Because as we walk in unity, you know, we're gonna live for something greater than ourselves. And that's what it is. The first purpose for walking in unity is because we are to live for something greater than ourselves. And that greater than ourselves is the fact that people are lost in this world and they need to hear the gospel. And we need to be lights of that gospel to, to back up what we preach, that people won't be able to use that crutch that they always do, that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. We all know it's an excuse. And we all know that we're not perfect. And if they added, if they joined the church, they would be a hypocrite too, right? Because they're a sinner, right? But yet, we need to make sure that our lifestyle backs up what, what we preach. 
And we also need to make sure that the church is one so when we do share the gospel and they get saved, that they have a place to come in and be built up. And so that was Paul's focus. He says, hey, live for the gospel that people can get saved and people can come in and be built up. And that takes sacrifice for you and I as believers at times. There's no place for, um, you know, attitudes of demanding our own rights. Sometimes we have to lay down our liberties as we are concerned with our testimony and the fact that we might offend a person in Christ. And so if I'm agonizing and I'm striving to live out my conduct to get the gospel out, well, then sometimes I might have to lay down my own pride or lay down my own desire, or I might have to die to myself in an area where I could stumble somebody. Maybe it can be a liberty. Maybe you might have that liberty, but yet it would imply sacrifice. And Paul says, hey, for the sake of the body, for the sake of unity, let's walk as one, in, in one mind and in one heart. And as each believer sets their soul and their mind on these things, I believe the Spirit of God will work these things out as we walk with him, and just as he did in the early church. And there was no program to work this out. They didn't have a checklist that they had to follow. All the believers got saved in the book of Acts, and they were of one accord. And God brought forth the gospel from their lives. It was a work of the Spirit. Now, another good purpose to walk in unity is given by Paul at the end of chapter 1. He said, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. And so when you read these verses like me, I think of individual suffering. I think, you know, okay, yeah, these people individually are going to suffer, but in context, Paul was dressing the whole church as a whole. This reminds me of when Jesus told Saul of Tarsus, when he met later to become Paul the apostle, he met Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, was Paul persecuting Jesus? Well, yeah, he was, because he was persecuting believers. And believers are in Christ, right? And we are connected with Christ, but we're also connected to one another. So in other words, as one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. Yes, maybe all these believers would experience some form of physical suffering, or maybe it was just some believers, but either way, it was the church as a whole which was experiencing this. And this shows us a good reason why we're to stand in unity. The Bible's clear that we're in a war zone, and the moment we became believers, we became soldiers of Jesus Christ. We didn't know that, but we signed up for it. But God has given us power to stand against our adversary, who is Satan and his demons. And sometimes Satan will use unbelievers, as we see here in verse 28. Now, these unbelievers might not know it, but they actually become adversaries as well, as they are under the sway of the wicked one. So when you come to work tomorrow and people are acting crazy, you think, man, what's going on? I know why. They're under the sway of the wicked one. So you're of your father, the devil. That's what Jesus said, right? No, I mean, that's probably not a real good way to start witnessing to them. kind of thing. But we have a biblical worldview, and we know it's true, that people aren't believers, and so they're not led by God. They're led by the enemy. And sometimes they can be swayed in order to be used for evil purposes, such as persecute the church. Now, while Satan can use these unbelievers for evil, our God is powerful enough to use it for good and for his glory. 
And that's how Paul, and that's how Paul encourages these believers who are suffering in this passage. And so Paul writes to these guys who are suffering and says, hey guys, I'm gonna encourage you right now. And here's how I'm gonna encourage you. God's got it all under control. He's actually allowed it. And he's allowed it for a good reason. Now Paul lists a couple of the reasons why God is allowing this suffering. First he says, it was proof to these unbelievers that they were actually children of wrath and heading for destruction. And so Paul says, man, these guys are witnessing against themselves. As they're persecuting you, they're actually representing and witnessing themselves the fact that they're lost and they're headed for a Christless eternity. Second, it was proof to these believers that they were in Christ. And that's what Jesus said. He said, hey, if they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. If they said, I'm filled with Beelzebub, man, they're gonna do the same to you. And so the fact that we're living these things out shows us that we're in Christ. You're a good person. Who would hate you, right? But people do because it's Christ in you that they hate. They hate the fact that you want to walk separated from the world, right? The fact that you want to live holy. I mean, why would someone hate a Christian? I mean, we're talking about loving people and, you know, being joyful, but yet it's Christ that that rubs them the wrong way, and that is where persecution comes from. And then third, they, they were like Paul. They were counted worthy by God to suffer for the name of Christ, so Paul didn't think it was a light thing to suffer. Paul said, hey, you guys are suffering. You're main, you, man, you're in the major league now. God has allowed you to suffer. Oh, praise the Lord. That's awesome. <laughs> Today we'd be like, oh, man, you know, let's find a way to get out of this. You know? But Paul, man, when he came and spoke to your church, as he's doing here through his epistle, he says, hey, if you're suffering for the name of the Lord, praise the Lord, you're, you're doing good. You're, you're like me now. You're following my example. You're following the example of Christ. God has, by his grace, allowed you to do these things and he's given you the power and the grace to go through it. So we have a good purpose to stand in unity. We're to unite in love and care for the wounded as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. You see, we're all each in this fight and sometimes others may struggle more than you. But when we come to the church, it's a place where we don't shoot the wounded, but it's where we encourage the wounded, right? Where we lift each other up and iron sharpen iron to build one another up so we can go back out in this fight. And no doubt, this is what these believers were doing with Paul's letter. As these believers were coming in and, and, and as we read in the first um, verse 28 here, Paul says, hey, don't be terrified by them. And so I don't believe that Paul would say that unless there was actually some terrified. They, they were actually going through physical persecution. They were terrified, like, hey, man, I'm, I might die for my faith. And they, they received this letter, and through the prophecy of Scripture, they, prophetically, these believers were able to use the Scripture of Paul and say, hey, man, look what Paul's saying right here. And they were able to build each other up. And that's what we do with the Word of God, through prayer, through our time of gift shop, as we share Scriptures. And that's how God builds us up to encourage us to go back out in the fight. And so we're to stand in unity for a greater purpose than ourselves, and that purpose is the gospel and building each other up. Now, second, in chapter two, verse one, we see the power for walking in unity. You're not on your own, but God has given you the power to do this. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... All scholars are faithful to point out that the word if in this verse is not the if of condition. This is not a conditional clause. 
But Paul's a logical guy, and so he's using a logical argument. So the word if here is actually to be understood as since. That's what Paul's saying. So in other words, what he's saying is, since all these things are given to you in Christ, you're to walk in these things. These are all things that we've already been given, and now we're to live it out. And that's what the Bible teaches throughout the New Testament. The Bible teaches that receive and then live. You, you've been given grace, so therefore you're to respond. Paul spent 11 chapters in the book of Romans talking about all that God has done for you and how he's blessed you and he's watched over you. Then in chapter 12, he says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you go and present your bodies as living sacrifices. Same with Ephesians. And so, and that's what Paul's saying here. All these things have been given to us in Christ through our life in Christ. We've been given the consolation in Christ. The word consolation is that word that is used of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us to help us, to teach us, to counsel us, to exhort us. Even so, Jesus, as our good shepherd, comes alongside of us, his flock, in order to encourage us through the work of the Spirit, in order to minister to us. He's among us, overturning those sheep which are downcast and anointing those sheep head with oil who are pestilent, you know, who are under pestilent. The Lord is here to minister us, to console us, and to comfort us. There's comfort of love. Comfort portrays the idea of closeness. One scholar says the word portrays the Lord coming close to us and whispering the words of gentle cheer and tender counsel in the believer's ear. So it's not like a distant thing like, hey, go for it. I got your back. It's like, hey, I'm like right here with you. And I'm gonna whisper these words of encouragement to you. As, and this is what, exactly what the Lord did to Paul. Paul found this out by experience. As Paul was in that Corinth, right? And he was discouraged. And the Lord came to Paul and said, Paul, there's many more people in this city who are gonna receive Christ. So be encouraged. Paul received that encouragement. And now he says, we're gonna receive the same encouragement as we walk with the Lord. He wants to whisper his word to us in a still small voice and encourage us to press forward. Fellowship of the Spirit. Believers in Jesus get to enjoy a sweet relationship with the Holy Spirit. Chuck Smith's book, Living Water, was my first book I actually ever read. First whole book I ever read in my life. I mean, I wasn't a reader. I was more of a pothead kind of thing. But, you know, but I got saved. And my youth pastor here gave me a bunch of these Chuck Smith books. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. They kind of sat on my dresser for a while. And one day I was like, man, I want to read this thing. And I read it and I was like, wow, the Holy Spirit's amazing. As he talked about in that book, the work of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit is with us as a person. He's not a force, not an it, but he's a person who is with us, ministering to us, encouraging us. We have fellowship of the Spirit. Yes, with each other as believers, we share the same Spirit as we're baptized into the body of Christ. But more importantly, we have the fellowship of the Spirit as we walk with him. He wants to commune with us, guide us, and teach us. We have been given affection and mercy these two words describe the heart of God towards the believer in Christ. You see, often people think of God as angry and ready to judge, but Paul says that when God looks at you, he has affection for you. And it's the same word affection that was used of Paul towards these believers. He says, hey, I'm, I'm affectionate towards you. And so in other words, God loves you and God wants to give you mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. We all deserve justice, which is getting what you deserve, but God has given us mercy he doesn't give us what we deserve, but rather he gives us grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us Christ and a new life. 
And so based upon all these things, we have been given the power to love. We've been given power to walk in unity because the Lord has given us these things. He's already teaching us how to do these things as we walk with him, and then we just express it to others. So third, in verses two through four, we see the practice of walking in unity. Paul says, fulfill my joy being like-minded, having the same love, being of one, mind, of one accord and of one mind. And so since all these same blessings have been given to us in Christ, we've been given the ability to do these things. We've been given the ability to love. Now Paul encourages believers to fulfill his joy by being like-minded, to be, to be in one. And so this was near to the heart of Paul. And um, Paul in 2 Corinthians talked about the cares of the churches and how they were daily on his heart. And you know, this, this was one of those things. Paul was concerned about their division and he was concerned about their, their relationship. Jesus, as I said in John 17, was concerned about the unity of believers. And so if these things are on the heart of the Lord and on the heart of Paul, well, then they need to be on our heart as well. They're, it's an important truth to, to follow. They are to be like-minded. To be like-minded does not mean to, you know, the fact that we can't be unique in our personality or in our thinking, but it describes a unity of focus and concern for, for the lost and for believers. We're to have the same love, and so each of us in Christ are to love each other the same way that God loves us. And just as God shows no partiality based upon background, personality, knowledge, ethnicity, or anything, even so, the Bible says we are all one in Christ and we're to love each other the same way. That's what I've been blessed about by this church. I came here and by myself. My family wasn't Christians and I came here as kind of a thug. I want to be a thug, I would call myself, but yet, you know, and so you, know, you have all these you know, older people ministering to me and loving me, you know, and it's like, and that's just, that's what the body of Christ does. As God takes people from different backgrounds, different walks of life and places us all in the one family so we can love each other and so we can share this love with each other. And that's what Paul says. Hey, regardless of who they are, hey, let's be of all the same love with one another. Be of one accord. Be of one accord, it once again, means of one purpose. Just as the believers in Acts were to, uh, of one purpose as they spent time in prayer and preaching, even so we are. Of one mind, again, focuses on our thinking. So we're to put on this mind of Christ. We're to have this biblical view of of how to walk this life of Christ. Verse three, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So now Paul begins dealing with our motives behind our relationships, interactions. Paul says that we're not to do anything through selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, ambition is actually a work of the flesh, as we learn in Galatians 5. Paul says, the work of the flesh are evident. These are the things of your old nature before you got saved. And one of those things is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition can be described as a desire to be first, regardless of the cost. I don't care about anybody else as long as I'm number one. That's what they teach you in business classes, right? <laughs> kind of thing. Get yourself on top. It'll raise your self-esteem. It'll make you feel better. <laughs> Who cares about everybody else as long as you make a lot of money? Kind of thing, right? But, but the Bible says, well, quite the, you know, quite the contrary, Selfish ambition is a work of the flesh. It's not of the Lord. But rather, we're to be lowly in mind. In other words, we're to be humble. And we're not to, be, we're not to bear conceit. Conceit describes a prideful attitude. Guzik, in his commentary, gives this good definition. He says, an excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability 
importance, wit, and so forth. When we do things feeling we are so important or so able or so talented, we are out of God's will. We're working against the unity Paul is pleading with them to have. And so selfish ambition and conceit are things that are rooted in our flesh and they're things that will destroy unity and destroy our effectiveness as the body of Christ. And we need to throw some weed and seed, as I did in my backyard, on these things that will try to tend to grow up. You know, just mow those things down, check those things, and, and, you know, and set them aside and, and allow the Lord to bear fruit in your heart of love, joy, peace, you know, and, and unity. Verse four, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So in contrast to selfish ambition to conceit what naturally comes from us, right? You and I are to not only look out for number one, ourselves, but we're to look out for others. And we are no longer number one. That's what the video's I Am Second's all about. Christ is now number one. We've been, right, you know, we, we've decreased. Now we're to look out for others. The key word in these verses is others. And this is what the Lord wants to work in our life as we walk with Christ. The closer we draw to God and to Christ, the more self-focused we should actually become. And that's what we see in the life of God's saints. As Isaiah saw the Lord, he said, woe is me for I'm undone. And the Lord said, okay, now that you're humbled, now I can use you to go out and preach my message. In the same way, John the Baptist, a spiritual godly man, the Lord says, okay, this is a good man right here. He's, you know, more famous than all the prophets kind of thing, you know. And John said, I must decrease that he must increase. So John believed that he must decrease as the Lord increased. Jesus himself, one of the mission statements of Jesus is given in Mark, what, what, you know, what we're studying on Sunday morning. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life, my life a ransom for many. We'll look at verse five through 11 next week, but look at verse five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's next step. All these things are lived out through the life of the Lord. So that, this is our greatest example, Jesus. And so we're to put on this mind of Christ, and as we do, we'll grow in unity. So in closing, if we're gonna be effective as the church of Jesus Christ, well then, we must be unified for a good purpose, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can take encouragement through this, and that we're not on our own, and that God has given us the power and the practice through his word to fulfill these things. So as we yield to the spirit, as we walk in the word, God is gonna touch the world through us. Amen?